Create, connect, communicate. Create, connect, communicate. Magical, enigmatical, gift of gab, super, natural, story, from the space Come, well lit. Let's put that away. All righty. Are you ready? I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm ready. All right. So here we go. Uh, we will start now. Hello, ladies and gentlemen and other distinguished human beings of the universe. We are back with another episode of Firelight Chats. We are joined here in the Space Lab in Da'an, Taipei, Taiwan, with a very special guest, Emily Haver. Emily Haver is a Taipei, Seattle, and Shanghai-based actor, playwright, director, who also dabbles in film. She has her BA in theater and a minor in Chinese from Seattle University and a Master of Arts in Intercultural Communication Studies at Shanghai Theater Academy. She grew up in the Washington cities of Seattle and Renton and spent her teenage years living in southern China. But now, Emily is currently living in Taipei, and she is back at the Space Lab for the second, or third, or fourth, or fifth time. Hopefully just second. <laughs> <laughs> Knock on wood there. Emily, welcome back. Hi, happy to be here again. <laughs> you want to explain why why we're laughing, sadly? <laughs> exactly. So hopefully... You all can hear us nice and clear with some beautiful audio because last week, actually on 1010 National Day of Taiwan, we recorded a beautiful two hour amazing conversation. And afterwards, I checked the audio file to do a little check and tweaking if necessary. And it turned out to be totally corrupted yeah first time for everything i guess and yeah lucky winner <laughs> exactly this is theater this is art <laughs> yeah do-overs are possible <laughs> exactly you have to just you have to deal with technical difficulties right yes yes yeah so and then there is a lot of rain. Well, actually, it, it's quite dry right now. But, but. Who, who knows where the afternoon will take us. <laughs> exactly. The, the weather yesterday was insane. The weather was insane. And there were, I think, kind of typhoon warnings that the city was actually going to close down today. So I thought we were going to have to cancel again. And then now we are back here. And right before Emily pulled up, there was some crazy construction going on in the back <laughs> so you know well you know maybe it's a good thing i feel like things come in in threes so the corrupted the audio the typhoon and the drilling so we got all the bad stuff out of the way exactly and this is actually our third time because the first time we had actually scheduled our first podcast episode and i had to call out sick unfortunately that's quite rare but i had to do it and 
So this is also yeah. third time's a charm. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> so if anyone hears a little bit of uh, background ambiance, please just know that is on purpose. That is our mise en scene. It's immersive, you know, exactly. for, for immersive for your ears. The virtual reality immersive full experience in audio theater here. Yep, live, live from Taipei, Taiwan. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Emily, how are you today on this not so lovely, but I guess I guess kind of nice and rainy? Reminds you of Seattle, perhaps? Yeah, I mean it's definitely a typical Taipei kind of winter day, even though it's not winter yet. But you know, it's just a kind of a, a preview of what's to come. The next few months of gray and gloom and rain. Yeah, I just I, I really have the luck of living in in cities where it it rains a lot. Seattle, Shanghai, and now Taipei. Exactly. Yeah. So that's perfect. Let's jump in here into Seattle. Then that is kind of uh, your hometown, either Seattle or right outside of Seattle, right? So tell us about Seattle and your childhood, the area that made you who you are. Yeah. So yeah, I grew up until I was about 15 in Seattle and then Renton in the suburbs where we moved for my mom's job. Um, pretty great place. Definitely is my hometown. And yeah, I was just, you know, your typical kid playing outside all the time in in the rain. You know, you, you got to do what you've got to do. Were you um, singing in the rain? Yeah, maybe singing in the rain, you know, got the rain boots on the whole the whole shebang, exploring the woods near our house, all, all of that good stuff. Mm, yeah, Seattle is quite beautiful. I mean, that whole Pacific Northwest region, right? You're speaking of the woods and nature. Yeah, there's I mean, there's mountains, there's water, there's forests, there's, you know, multiple national parks there. So really spoiled having grown up there, just like with all of that nature, super close and super accessible for the most part, as long as you have transportation to it. And I think Seattle is quite known for its art scene. Were there any influences there from Seattle to kind of nowadays as a full blown artist? It's kind of funny. So growing up, my best friend and I, um, our moms, they would, we had like kind of two activities that we would do together frequently. So we would go to Seattle Children's Theater and we would watch plays there. And it, it really is like a world class theater, but it's plays for children. Um, and then we would also like go backpacking and hiking. And so funnily enough, I ended up in theater and my best friend, uh, childhood best friend, she ended up in kind of outdoor education, leading kind of treks out in the wilderness. So Ooh. really, you know, foundational stuff happening. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of that, these kind of early years, did you always know that you were kind of an artist or did you have other kind of inclinations or exposure to other influences that you think contributed to you going along this path? Yeah, I mean... I was a big reader growing up since both of my parents are in education. So that was a big part of it. And I always loved just artistic stuff like drawing and playing pretend and, you know, making up elaborate stories with my Barbies and my Polly Pockets um, <laughs> and, you know, getting overly emotionally attached to random things. I had a, 
a pet rock named Speckles, who, you know, I'd make these little, these little outfits for, um, but sadly, Speckles had a bit of a tragic end. We were playing hide and seek in the backyard, and I threw Speckles because it was Speckles' <laughs> turn to hide, um, and Speckles was never to be seen again. No way. Yeah, lo- lost in the grass. It was in the grass. Tragic. Yeah. So. Wow. You know these early scars. They, exactly. They, <laughs> they never leave you. Where do you think Speckles is now? I hope Speckles is just you know living living their best rock life (laughs) in the ground somewhere so i mean maybe in my old backyard maybe you know who who knows where rocks go (laughs) exactly from prehistory to infinity yeah they're there (laughs) it reminds me of catcher in the rye Mm -hmm. i don't know if you've read that a long time ago yeah because holden caulfield one of his big things in the book is like where do the ducks go Mm, every winter and it kind of reminds me of that it's like where do the rocks go it's true where do they just stay in the same place like do they leave the mysteries of the universe these are very important questions i think (laughs) yes we will try to get into them (laughs) these existential questions. I know these kind of deep questions influence you, right? Yeah. Yes. They're part of your work and part of your process. So, okay. So you mentioned also that your parents are both educators and I believe that is connected to why you also spent some time in Asia. Yeah, so my mom, she's a kindergarten teacher, and then my dad, he's done a variety of stuff, but in the position that he was offered at this school, he was the school counselor. And so my mom, when I was 15, she got offered a job in Southern China, like near Guangzhou, and we moved after my freshman year of high school. So like the whole family uprooted and moved to China. Um, They like to blame me for this. Um, I, I don't know, blame is the right word. It's because I, I'd kind of been interested in like maybe being an exchange student in high school for a year. And my mm. mom, she was like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to lose you for a year when, you know, you're still a kid essentially. So, so let's all go together. Yeah. And like, I'm wow. the one who found the school's website and, you know, she applied and somehow both of my parents, you know, got a job offer. And literally I think oh, it was, that's, in six weeks, we had to pack up our whole life and move. Yeah, we, we found out about the job in like May, like late May. I remember I was at an ice skating rink and I got like a, a, a voice message, a voicemail from my mom like, I got the job. We're going to move. And I was like, oh, wow. No way. <laughs> this is crazy. And then, yeah, we moved like six weeks later in, in July and... Yeah, it all it all worked out. Like we found a family friend to rent the house long term. But yeah, signed up for that three year job contract and we were gone. That's amazing. So the impetus was actually your kind of desire to study abroad. Yeah, my my um, budding wanderlust. Right. Because I'd never been out of the country before, but I was always interested in other cultures and languages and experiences. I'm a Sagittarius, so maybe that mm, explains it. There it is. <laughs> okay. But that being said, you also have some kind of deep family history connected to China. Yeah, so it wasn't totally out of the blue to go to China. Like, 
if we'd gone to Ecuador or something that, mm. you know, that, that would have been really random. Right. Um, but yeah, actually, so I'm the, the fifth generation in my family to have lived in China and the kind of greater China area for one reason or another. So like it started out, I guess, great, great grandparents. They were doing kind of doctor medical work. And then my grandmother, she was... She grew up in Fujian province um, and then eventually met my grandfather in the States and then they moved to Hong Kong to work. My grandfather was a hospital administrator, grandma was a nurse, and then my mom grew up in in Hong Kong for most of her childhood. So Mm. fifth generation. So it wasn't, you know, totally out of the blue, Um, I guess just... The start of it, it was quite sudden. So were you able to kind of dig around in those ancestral, for lack of a better term, or at least family roots kind of in China, you know, going to like Fujian or perhaps Hong Kong during that time that you were in Guangdong, right? Yeah. So yeah, like um, we were fairly close to Hong Kong. So we probably went... I mean, not every month, but probably, you know, every six-ish weeks or so. So it really, it was cool to, you know, see the place where my mom grew up and she was able to, you know, bring us around to all of the spots that were were still there. Mm. Um, and yeah, it just kind of gave me this new insight into her and who she, the forces that formed her, really. Mm. So that was pretty cool to have that experience. And then we were, we also took like a trip with my grandparents to Fujian, where my grandmother grew up and kind of went to the the different spots um, that she lived. And so that was also interesting because it's like you hear these stories about these places and then you actually go and it's like, wow, she actually grew up, you know, in this random village. Yeah. So what did you think about Fujian? Fujian is kind of the uh, home of a lot of Taiwan here, right? Many of the kind of ancestors came from Fujian. So yeah, like I guess I had only really known about it because I mean, there's so many provinces in China, but I knew about it, you know, because of my my grandmother. And yeah, it was it, we, we went in the winter, so it was a little cold, but we yeah, just like hit up all of these tiny little spots. There was a like a tour bus set up for us and like <laughs> these people guiding us and the people were so nice. So I'm a vegetarian, pescatarian technically. Mm. Um, and when they found out they wanted to accommodate that. And so, you know, because it was almost like this homecoming for my grandmother, there were all these banquets, Mm. days and days of banquets and their local specialty was mushrooms. And so they thought, Oh, as you know, this, we, we want to accommodate this vegetarian girl. So every meal, mushrooms, mushrooms, mushrooms. I really don't like mushrooms now because I ate them so much in like a three day span. It was, it was way too much. Wow, that's very that's tragic. Yeah. As a vegetarian. Yeah, you it's like you know. a staple vegetable, yeah. but yeah. It's like the meat of vegetarianism. Yeah, <laughs> and it's used, you know, in a lot of like kind of substitutions as well. Exactly. So, it was yeah. I I'm very grateful, you know, they were accommodating <laughs> me. Like that's so kind of them, but it was so many. It's like I Give me, give me some broccoli. <laughs> Just some vegetables. Just give me some tofu, please. <laughs> wow, that's sad. So no more shrooms for Emily. No, yeah, <laughs> too, too many. <laughs> too many mushrooms. 
Wow. That is a utter shame, I yeah. think. So you also mentioned going to Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And last time we mentioned during our failed podcast <laughs> that about Wong Karwai. Yeah, yeah. An in amazing director love. from Hong Kong. And you, you admitted that that was recently it was your first time to see a Wong Kar Wai film. So yeah, a couple of weeks ago I saw In the Mood for Love for the very first time. I guess it was... How dare you? I, I have a How thing with you? a lot of movies <laughs> that are classics where I know I'll get around to it mm. eventually, but um, I happens. I just the timing needed to be right, um, and it was it was in the theaters, so I thought, well, this seems like the right time to like go see this total classic mm -hmm. on the big screen, and I'm glad that I did because it just you know. It was a lot nicer than watching it on your laptop or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So you said it was playing here in Taipei. Yeah, they were playing it at the the spot cinemas, which are, you know, those art house cinemas that have a whole variety of movies that they play. Is it still playing as far as you know? As far as I know. Yeah, mm. it seemed like it was going to be, you know, like at least a month's run because it's a popular movie. <laughs> it's like one of the greatest films of all time. It's yeah. What I... Luckily, I saw it in the late afternoon. So when I got out, it was dark out because if mm. I'd walked out into just like the bare daylight, it would have been so jarring. Very anticlimactic, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but luckily it was, you know, a, a moody nighttime. So mm. I was able to like go on a walk and decompress from being in the world of that movie, which I, I just think it's the most perfect movie ever made. Yeah, exactly. The mood as is in the name. And as you mentioned, with the night that followed after you watched it that I think Wong Karwai really captures like a very intense mood in that film. Yeah, well, because now that I'm thinking about it, like the whole movie, all the scenes are at night, aren't mm -hmm. they? And so it's, yeah, this very... I don't know, specific shadowy kind of often rainy. There's like a lot of scenes with rain feeling, which it, it was kind of strange watching it just because of this like sense of deja vu I got like both from having spent a lot of time in Hong Kong and then like my mom having grown up there during the 60s and 70s, which is when the film is. And just, mm. yeah, this strange, strange deja vu-y feeling. Yeah, I mean, it was such a special time in such a special city, right? Yeah. And quite tragically, will perhaps never be the same. Yeah, with all the kind of political changes that have happened. Right. Films like that, I think, are so valuable because it's really a time capsule of things that might no longer be there. Yeah, and I mean, Wong Kar Wai, like, this was filmed, I think, in the late 90s, right? So he was, like, capturing the Hong Kong of his youth and then... You know, it was maybe a decade off for the actors in exactly. it. Maggie Chung. Ma yeah. Maggie Chung, Tony Leung. Oh, they're just. They're so good. It's too good. Too good. So you haven't seen any of his other films. No. So yet. now I need to watch everything. You you must. Yeah. Everyone must. <laughs> <laughs> this is mandatory. Yes. Absolutely. Mandatory viewing. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So how was the high school experience going to an international high school uplifting? yourself from Seattle and mm -hmm. as a young girl going to this new international high school in Guangdong. How was this experience? Yeah, it was 
I never really felt any culture shock, I would say, probably just because of my family background. I think I'm just kind of a flexible person and it helped, you know, it was a boarding school. So we had a pretty small world on the day to day of Mm. things. And the school itself was very small. So it was like 120 kids, K to 12, which is so small. So honestly, yeah, that was like the biggest shock of just having such an intense environment to live in Um, because not all the students were boarders but a lot were so you know I was basically living like kind of in the same apartment complex you know as all my teachers like many of my classmates yeah it's a compound basically essentially so yeah a a bit stifling in that (laughs) sense it's like cool I'm gonna like go on a walk and see my history teacher yeah and both your parents yeah and both my parents worked there um at least my mom as a kindergarten teacher like different building Mm. but my dad was like the secondary school counselor so his office you know main hallway first floor walk by it all the time all the other students you know they loved him they'd go in spill all their troubles I'd just be like oh dad But, you know, the the pro was like sometimes I could get out of things because we had like mandatory after school activities. And sometimes, okay, this is going to be very nerdy of me. Sometimes I just wanted to go home and do my homework and not have to do an activity. (laughs) So I'd be like, Dad, I have a headache. And he'd be like, fine, go. Oh, that's hilarious. You're making excuses not to get out of homework. No, to go and do my homework. (laughs) Yeah, because I. It's raining today. It's raining. I need to go to do my Yeah, homework. I gotta do that. Well, yeah, because I was doing the IB program, the International mm, Baccalaureate, which mm-hmm. is like very, very intense. Right. Um, so I legitimately was just like, I just need to go study. Right. <laughs> I can't play soccer. I need to I study. I can't do this extracurricular yeah. stuff. <laughs> Oh, wow. Okay. So how many years did you spend in this high school? So we lived there for three years. So Mm. I I graduated from high school there. Valedictorian. Oh, so much competition in a class of 16. So Um, those excuses paid off. Yeah. You know, I I got my good grades and uh, everything. Do your classmates know that story? How you became valedictorian? Yes. Got my extra study time in. Your way to that. I mean, they were all you know try to skip activities for other stuff and i was like i just need to study (laughs) oh my goodness that is hilarious wow yeah my my truly nerdy roots (laughs) (laughs) okay so after three years of this high school did you decide to return back to the states yeah so my whole family we moved back and i had only applied to colleges in the u.s and so i ended up choosing school in seattle because after being away i kind of wanted to be near my extended family and rediscover the city like as as an adult mm. and so like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, be in Seattle, study theater. I decided in, I think, my third year of high school, like, theater was going to be it. Mm. <laughs> um, but, I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm, like, pretty grateful for my experience in high school in China is because I had this wonderful theater teacher, really small class, so, like, got a lot of kind of attention and mentorship mm. um, and opportunities. Like, we went to a a theater festival in in Hong Kong that was like international students from all over Asia all came and 
we were there for like a like five days or something and we were just taking all of these workshops and stuff and that was the experience that made me realize okay this is it like I figured it out I don't know Mm. what exactly but like I know I want to do theater and and make art in the last year of your high school Mm -hmm. that's awesome that's really lucky right yeah like a lot of people you know, maybe they don't have that moment. (laughs) Yeah. Until they're older or just like they never have it. Yeah. They're just coasting along. So I'm, I'm lucky that that happened when I was like 16 or 17. Yeah, exactly. So you entered Seattle university and decided to study theater. Yeah. So theater major, and then I minored in Chinese just to kind of continue that connection. And so, yeah, it was, it was four years of studying theater, doing plays, just like studying, studying all the stuff. Um, and also kind of integrating myself into like the larger Seattle theater community as a whole. After three years of these quite formative years of our life, right? High school. Did you feel any sense of culture shock when you returned back to Seattle? Yeah, definitely had some reverse culture shock going on more than I ever had moving to China. It was like, Mm. wow, everybody speaks English. (laughs) Wow, there's so many conversations I can eavesdrop on. (laughs) Um, So it it was a little overwhelming at first because, I mean, we'd gone home in the summer for like a couple months, like six weeks, but never for super extended amount of time. So readjusting to both culture and just the weather was a lot colder. Mm, true that. <laughs> yeah, it was <laughs> like, oh gosh, it's so cold. Like, yay, it's not super hot, but oh, it's cold. Mm. So how was this experience at Seattle University? Yeah, I made, you know, like a lot of close friends from it. And really, it was the type of program where it's not like you specialize in one thing. So it wasn't a BFA and so it, it really was, you kind of learn about everything. You learn about theater history, classes about costumes and stage design, as well as acting and directing and all of that. And so, mm. yeah, it was super well-rounded education. When you were studying there, did it help you to kind of narrow your field of vision in terms of your career that followed? Were you able to kind of figure that out during this time? You know, because you mentioned that it was quite a general program, right? It's a BA, not a BFA. So were you able to find some kind of particular inspirations during this time? Yeah. So I I started out mostly being interested in acting just because didn't really ever have the chance to do anything else. Like when you're Mm. in high school, like that's what you do. You act in high school play. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was kind of my main focus, but I, I was still pretty open to just whatever. And so then finally in, I guess it was my last year, my senior year, and that's when I finally had the chance to take like a directing class and a playwriting class. And I really liked both of them, but kind of for different reasons. So like mm. directing class, it let me put this like analytical hat on and be like, okay, how do I perfectly craft this scene or this play? And how do I get the actors to do that without saying, okay, stand there and say it like this? Like, how do Mm. I foster this environment where, where people can explore, but then, you know, ultimately it's serving what my vision is. Um, Mm. And then in the playwriting class is kind of the opposite. It was like, oh, I can just be creative. I can write whatever like and our our teacher she um our professor she had a very i don't know it was it was like almost a physical approach to writing like we'd like 
go in and like do like movement exercises before class, you know, started. It would be like lying on the floor and like doing visualizations and stuff. It's like method playwriting. <laughs> method playwriting. <laughs> yeah. And like, because as a kid, wow. I'd always, you know, I'd liked writing kind of like short stories or I always dreamed of being a novelist or something. Mm. Um, I don't know why. I just like had never, even when I was studying theater, I never thought, oh, I, I could be the one writing these plays. But then taking that class, it kind of helped me let go of that fear of like, oh, people are going to judge what I write or I have to write in a certain way because I just like, you know what? I'm just going to write what I want to write. Mm. <laughs> so it was pretty freeing. As a fellow lover of language and books, you mentioned that when you were young, you wanted to become a novelist or read a lot of these kind of books. What are some, maybe three, putting you on the spot here, what are three of the most memorable books? They don't have to be the best or the deepest, but just memorable books from your childhood. Okay. Um, I think one, one that I read a lot um, was A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. I can't remember who the author is, but it's a novel about like a Irish immigrant family in New York in like, I think the early 1900s. And yeah, that was one of the books that like I, I kind of read and reread. Like I've always been interested in kind of that immigrant narrative. We found it here. A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, a novel by Betty Smith. Betty Smith. Okay. Mm. That's the author. All right. Now we know. <laughs> Shout out to Betty Smith. She may be, I don't know. Is what, what does Wikipedia is she, say? Is, is she, she still alive? Is she alive? Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Betty Smith. Let's find out. No. Okay. Okay. So rest in peace, Betty Smith. <laughs> <laughs> this is an ode to Betty Smith yes. and a tree that grows in Brooklyn. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Nice. And then? Um, and then another book I loved um, in high school was Jane Eyre um, by Charlotte Bronte. Mm -hmm. And it, I still love it. Like it's one of those books where every time I read it, I just like get something new out of it. Yeah. It's a classic English book. Yeah, all, all these kind of like gothic themes. Um, and so, yeah, early, early love of the Bronte sisters. And then a third book. Oh, the, the problem is I, I've read so much. I'm sure. That it's literally <laughs> sometimes so hard to think. Mm -hmm. I, I'm trying to like visualize um, like my bookshelf. Your nerd uh, library in your room. Yeah, perhaps. My, my, I had my a library in my library. room. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, there's in my childhood bedroom, there's like this huge, like three level bookshelf that. Oh, damn. You had three levels. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you one up or you two up me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, our, our spare room growing up, we called it the book room because that's Ooh. where like all most of the bookshelves that's were. Some serious nerd credentials. <laughs> yeah. I read a third book. Oh, I guess. Well, because I liked kind of the the story of the author as well it's not a great book mm. um Aragon by by Christopher Paolini I think um Aragon. Like, it's just like a fantasy book that kind of rips off like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings but the the author was 19 when he published it how do you spell Aragon uh it's with an e okay and then like Lord of the Rings yeah, but the, oh, there it is. The, okay. the author, he published it, I think, when he was like 19. And so, ooh. you know, as an aspiring writer, I was like, ooh, that's cool um, that he, he published something at such a young age. Hmm. But yeah, kind of. 
classic fantasy kids book. Right, young adult fantasy dystopian. It's a Bildungsroman. Yes, coming of age story. Exactly. Okay, nice. Do you like kind of these fantasy or even maybe like science fiction genre? Yeah, I do. Um, I haven't read as much of it lately, but definitely growing up, especially like I read a lot of fantasy and sci-fi and just kind of enjoyed imagining these these different worlds. Mm -hmm. Okay, so after graduating from Seattle University, Mm -hmm. the real world beckoned. Yeah, like and a I building's said, Roman. I said, no, don't make me get a job. Um, <laughs> and so like in the spring of that year, I had applied to grad school. So mm. I'd come across, you know, like you, you just go like down these Google rabbit holes of like, oh, you know, theater, China. Oh, Shanghai Theater Academy. Oh, mm. they have a master's program in English. Oh, what if I applied for that? It's a fully funded scholarship. So... I applied and, you know, had like the interview and like tests and everything. And I got in and I was like, oh, crap. Now, now I have to decide <laughs> if I'm going to do this. And right. so it was kind of like, well, I, I have to like, wow, you know, you don't always get these types of opportunities to so, I don't know, kind of drastically change the course of your life. Trajectory of your life. Yeah. Right. So when you were applying for colleges, you said you were applying all to American colleges, right? Yeah, yeah. But then grad school, was it the same way where you definitely knew you wanted to come back to the kind of greater China region? I mean, with this, because I, I was kind of like, oh, I probably won't get in. Um, mm. And so it was kind of the just, lark. yeah, I was like, oh, might as well apply and kind of thinking, you know, okay, then maybe next year, a couple of years down the line, I can like actually do research and figure out like what different programs properly. are out there. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I got in. So it was On like, well, try. I'm moving to Shanghai. <laughs> That's crazy. So it is in Shanghai, one of the greatest cities on the planet. I believe it's also quite a prestigious academy as well. Yeah. So yeah, lots of um, like celebrities in China have gone there, like Fan Bingbing, Li Bingbing, lots of um, those stars. And so it's, it's quite competitive for people who have like Chinese nationality to get into, Mm. but like not as competitive if you're a foreigner, like applying for this program in English. And it's a full ride. Yeah, full ride scholarship. Um, so we, you know, got room and board as well as tuition. So nice. had our, it wasn't a huge stipend, but like enough to get by. Enough to survive. Yeah. In Shanghai. I wasn't living a big life by any means, mm. you know, had my various like noodle and dumpling shops I'd rotate mm-hmm. through for my, my meals. Yeah. That's Shout out to the, the Muslim noodle place on the street by oh. our school. Truly tragic that they're really isn't any of that in in Taiwan. Seriously. Like every now and then I'll like look on Google Maps, I'll do like Xinjiang noodles, Xinjiang noodles. Uyghur noodles, Muslim yes. noodles, and it, it doesn't exist. It's such a utter shame. Yeah. 
I went to Xi'an and oh wow yeah. have you been to I Xi'an? have yeah but I <clears throat> just had food poisoning so uh. eating wasn't actually a big um, <laughs> no, priority really. you got food poisoning from the food there or prior to okay. and prior to like a 30-hour <gasps> train ride as well like some stomach bug oh that is so sad yeah it was a, it was a bummer <laughs> that is really sad because Xi'an is a amazing historic city and then there's a really amazing Muslim quarter. Yeah. With really great food. Yeah. And like our hotel <sighs> was like right by it too. So yeah, yeah I, I remember like having some flatbread at least, yes. you know, yeah, you something gentle. A, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So where, where was this school located in Shanghai? It's a huge metropolis. So. Yeah. Huge. I mean, it's the population of Taiwan, essentially. I think it's more. More. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah. It's mm -hmm. a lot of people in a fairly, you know, large amount of space. Like, it's right. it's not it's all packed out. in like Hong Kong is, right. for example. Um, yeah. So it, the school's like in the French concession. So really so cool. the heart of the city. <laughs> um, you know, the the streets lined with the, the French plane trees. Like I actually got a tattoo of, of one mm. of those trees right before I left Shanghai. Cause Ooh. I was like, oh, gotta do something. But yeah, like right in this really historic area. And like as someone who loves history, I thought that that was pretty cool. Like I, I'd known about, you know, like Shanghai, it's this city, huge history and everything, um, but it was, it was when I was living there that it was actually like, okay, cool. I can, you know, imagine walking down the street in 1920 or something. On the Bund. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, helped spark like an obsession with kind of like 1920s, 30s, Shanghai, mm, everything. Right. Um, last time you mentioned your dorm as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, first of all, it was very big city China in that it was like an 18 story dorm. Let, let me tell you the rush at lunchtime for the elevator, oh. like both going like after class, you know, going back to your room and then going to the, to the afternoon classes. And then, mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. Like if you timed it wrong, you would be late to your class <laughs> because and especially because we were on the 18th floor and so a it took a long time to get up to us and then b because everyone in the whole building was trying to leave at the same time while it was going up people would still get in even if they were going down so you'd get up to oh, the 18th no floor way. and it would open <laughs> and then all you'd see this whole you know elevator full of people and it's like Come on, guys. They're like reserving their spot. Really? <laughs> really? Yeah, it was. That's hilarious. So annoying. And it's not like you can just take the stairs on a whim. Like sometimes I would if I was going to be late to class and the elevators were too full. Oh, my goodness. So you are you were living in the penthouse. Yeah. 18th floor. <laughs> um, yeah, it was where the international students both from our, our program and then, cause there were also foreign students, like they're just taking Chinese classes kind mm. of randomly. And so like in our program, we had to take Chinese classes the first year. So every morning at 8.30 in the morning for three hours, you had Chinese class, which mm -hmm. got a little rough by like the <laughs> second semester, just cause it's, it's a little early to be speaking and studying a, a foreign language. Yes. Um, yeah, by the, the end of that semester, I'd started um, taking Fridays off because, yeah, I, I just was just it. like, I need to 
a sleepy focus on my actual grad school classes not mm. not the language part of it but I, I i would use it actually to like go out into the world and like speak chinese to people like i'd go to a park and like hang out with the ies doing their square square dancing, square dancing. yeah <laughs> yeah well. That is amazingly quintessentially Chinese. Yeah. That experience. I experienced I that in Beijing and Shanghai. It's the same. Yeah. In every city of China is the same. It, it is. I mean, I, Can you I explain that for it. people who have never been to China. What is what is an IE and what are they doing exactly? <laughs> so an IE is like a middle aged woman, you know, anywhere from maybe 45 to 70. <laughs> it really is more of a vibe than like a specific age. Um, True. Usually there's some sort of sequined clothing involved, uh, maybe some leopard print and like a Chinglish t-shirt. Oh, yeah. Like that's right. improper uh, English. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so these women, like one of their like kind of big social activities is to meet. And I guess some sometimes it's some men, too, but usually it's women. Um, mm -hmm. They go and they meet in like public squares and they they dance together like someone has usually kind of a crappy loudspeaker exactly that's and, important um they and some led lights yeah led lights if it's at night and they have their their songs that they have their you know dance routines to and they just do it as a big group and honestly they they love it if you they join are in so happy oh you joined in the, oh. the, I, I was you know like <laughs> pulled, pulled in, in. <laughs> Yeah, I I actually have a I have a selfie with this like older lady that she made me take because she had us switch our sunglasses. <laughs> no. And so I was wearing hers and she was wearing mine and it was just like This has been documented. Yeah, it was it, it was a lot of uh, a lot of fun and that's why I was like, well, this is, you know, giving me more authentic Chinese speaking practice exactly. than like you know, like my tinglika or whatever. Right. Yeah, exactly. So after this experience, did your Chinese improve more or did your dancing improve more? Definitely, definitely Chinese. Um, <laughs> like usually their dance moves aren't too hard, though. I feel like there's always like this one lady who's showing off like she has like the back bend or something no or like this the special scarf so the true. posing scarf there's also there's always a alpha female there yeah who's like this this is my world and you can tell yeah, yeah. and well i i've like read things too <laughs> about like the behind the scenes drama of of these groups like my no. my roommate my second year when i was like living in an apartment so my flatmate um she she was chinese and like i think her aunt back um in the province she was from was in one of these groups and so she'd like get these updates of like so and so wants to do this song and it's so annoying no way yeah so pretty pretty funny dynamics um yeah that's one of the things i i do miss about china just like turning a corner and stumbling upon you know, one of these groups of, of ladies dancing, exactly. dancing their hearts out. Dancing their hearts out, for sure. It is a festive, joyful evening. Yes. For sure. <laughs> so during this time that you were studying there, you studied in Chengdu? Or? Oh, yeah. So that, that was an undergrad. Oh, so okay. I, for like a semester, mm. um, I studied in, in Chengdu. And 
Yeah, I I loved it there. It's have you been there? No, no. I, who knows I mean, when I, <laughs> that could happen? Oh, that's true. That's true. Because I love Sichuan food. I love spicy. I love mala. I know that you don't. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I don't. You know, it, it's just what it's. There's so much of it. You know, may, maybe this is like similar to the mushroom effect from high school. It's like when you have it all the time, it's kind of like a little too much. But I, I did enjoy the food there, and you know, super cheap as well. Mm. This was like 2015. Yeah, it was cool to see a different part of China, like the mm-hmm. the Southwest. Yeah. Um, and like the school that the program was at was. Oh, what was it? Like the Southwest University for okay. nationalities or minorities or something like Xinaminzu oh. Dashui. Okay. So it was. Does that mean? It was like specifically for like the different ethnic groups that are in China. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. And like there were like, you know, specific, I think, degrees or like departments like in like Tibetan studies or so-and-so studies. Was that your first foray into this Xinjiang food that we mentioned? Yeah, I think so. Um, also Tibetan food a lot Ooh. because Chengdu is kind of the gateway to the whole Tibetan region, not just Tibet, right. Tibet. And the street next to the campus was actually kind of like this little Tibet. Mm. And so there were so many shops that monks would go to to like buy their monk supplies. So you would just like see Tibetan monks chilling all the time. You know, they'd have their iPhones and it's like, is that really a that, is that a monk a monkly uh, life <laughs> having is that a monk I remember supply? one had like two two iPhones and I'm like, I I've I'm an Android, like I'm a Windows <laughs> phone man. Where where are you getting this money? But yeah, there were like you know, selling like incense and candles mm. and all the stuff you need. And so, of course, there were Tibetan restaurants. And so I mm. got to have like momos and. Oh, momos. Yeah. Try. Dumplings. Yeah. Oh, so good. Yes. Just dumplings. Dumplings in any culture, any form. Dumplings are amazing. Top tier food. And Tibetan food has, of course, a lot of kind of Indian influence, yeah. obviously because of the region, curries and a lot of amazing spices. Yeah, lots of spices. So yeah, it was it was cool studying abroad in Chengdu and then like also getting this little taste of Tibet as well. So this was for just a semester during your time at Seattle University. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So just went there for like four or five months. Okay. Yeah. Any other memories from your experience in Shanghai? during Mm. your time at the Shanghai Theater Academy. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty cool. So our our cohort was, I think maybe like 10 people. So it was a very small class. So we got to know each other very well, maybe too well sometimes. (laughs) Um, You know, if you don't get along as well with some people, it's like, I didn't need to know that about your life. Um, But yeah, we were from all over the world. So I think, what was it? There were like two of us from the US, two from the UK, and then people from places like Russia, India, South Korea, Mexico, Lithuania. Mm. Um, wow. Yeah, really all over the world. Mm. So, and they, they all had different backgrounds too. Like it wasn't just purely theater people. So, mm. you know, you had people who like had done more film or visual arts or like stand up comedy. Like one of my best friends from the program, they're a stand up comic now. And so. In Chinese. In English. Okay. Can they do it in Chinese as well? Like- I think so. Cause um, they, they studied Chinese at Oxford University. Okay. And so their, their Chinese is like 
fluent. That better be pretty legit. Like they, wow. they can read like the old poems and the Tang Dynasty. Yeah. Um, no, that's crazy. So I think yeah, they they've maybe done a little bit of stand up in Chinese, but you know, Tang Dynasty stand up <laughs> comedy. That would be very very niche. Um, <laughs> yeah, yes. But actually, because like. Through that the Oxbridge crowd, you know, yeah. get a few claps. <laughs> yeah, th through that friend and then another who she she was both a stand up comedian and like a punk musician. So I kind of got to know like an Oxford grad, di different person, oh, different person. two, okay, two okay, comedians. Okay. Yeah, not Oxford grad, but she um, was a punk musician, did stand up comedy and was going to grad school. And so she oh, awesome. she obviously already been in Shanghai for a while since she was in those scenes. And so it was it was cool to like get into the music scene and like the stand up scene and you know meet people doing different creative things mm. because if i'm just like doing theater in a, a vacuum of theater and only theater artists it can be a bit insular so yeah. having different types of artistic expression around me it's like oh that's you know so cool and maybe it sparks some some idea right so what did you think of the art scene there in shanghai and obviously we will compare a little bit later with your experience now in taiwan but you know shanghai also and china you know at large is having kind of some interesting political and economic kind of situations mm -hmm. so when i was in beijing there was quite a clampdown on freedom of expression yeah you said it was like 2017 ish no or it's later oh, it's later. around 2020 oh, 20, okay. so like right before 2019 and 2020 yeah. so right before covid broke out um it was also the 70th anniversary of the prc oh yeah i were yeah i was i mean i was in shanghai oh, for you that were there. yeah yeah <laughs> how was that experience down the internet in got real slow yes. um yeah no no vpns yeah no i i do remember that happening and i i think before like the the party conference like she she also came to Shanghai. It was kind of crazy because it, it's different from Beijing because, you know, Beijing's the capital. Shanghai, it, it's far away. Exactly. Um, and has always, you know, been kind of international, kind mm -hmm. of a little more open. Yes, definitely. Um, but like, yeah, before his visit, you know, they were like manicuring like the roads and stuff. And I, I was doing tutoring for, you know, some money on the side for like this wealthy family. And I guess they lived in an area that his motorcade was going to go through because they were like totally like redoing, you know, the center of the road and the flowers, and making mm. everything perfect. Perfect. Um, Potemkin village. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, anyone who's lived in China, like when there's like a big party, you know, anniversary or I heard conference. there's a big party going on now. <laughs> Oh, a big yeah. rave going on in yeah <laughs> just one speaker right um, exactly one dj yeah <laughs> yeah but they're definitely between when i like arrived there in 2017 and when i left in 2019 mm. um things definitely were kind of i feel like tightening up freezing over a little bit as a foreigner of course i would never get the full extent of that because there is a little bit of leeway and of course you know mm. i can always leave but yeah hopefully hopefully <laughs> yeah i don't yeah. want to be too outspoken exactly um don't be too confident about that <laughs> yeah <laughs> there have been some foreigners who yeah haven't historically been able haven't to leave. left yeah. yeah exactly exactly yeah, but, but um, so you did feel kind of a change in the winds. Yeah, just like not necessarily 
artistically um, mm. because like I was still, you know, seeing the same types of performances and stuff, but just, yeah, just kind of in general, it's hard to describe, but it was just kind of like this overall societal feeling of Definitely. like some things in the air. Some it's really hard to yeah describe if you like haven't lived in China at different periods too. Yeah. Cause like my first stint 2010 to 13 mm. and then, so that was like pre Xi Jinping. And then I studied abroad in 2015. And mm. so that was, but that was in Chengdu. That's like so, so far, far away, away yeah. from the capital. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, 2017 to 19. And so kind of over really a decade. Yeah. Right. Like just the feeling was a lot. It got a lot different. Okay. So like from the very beginning to this kind of last stint there. Oh yeah. You, 20, like 2010 huge, to 2019. Totally different. It's a different world yeah. in many ways, right? In Not just ways. politically. Yeah. I mean, technology, like WeChat. WeChat's ridiculous. I know you, you can do everything. <laughs> it's so convenient, so surveilled, but you know, so convenient. It's I'm like, convenient, I, I'm not a dissident. Like <laughs> you can read my messages, whatever. Mm -hmm. I pose the idea of it, but it's like, uh, you know, what can you do? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Do you miss the ease of WeChat living in Taiwan? Mm. I, I think it was mainly the, the biggest change I felt just like in the day to day was having to switch from like digital currency back yes. to cash. 100%. Yeah. We talked about it last time and we pretty much talk about it on every podcast, but the banking system here oh, yeah. in Taiwan is back in the Stone Ages. Yes. And China is in the future. Yeah. <laughs> no one in is the next quite, galaxy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, because when I studied abroad in 2015, that was kind of the start of WeChat. Mm. And because I didn't have a bank account there, I couldn't access the money. And it, everything was still pretty much cash based. But right. then a few years later, I moved there and I was like, oh, like, thank goodness, you know, school set me up with a bank account because you needed WeChat and you mm -hmm. needed Alipay, not just to pay for things, but to communicate with everyone, you know, to rent a bicycle sometimes to call a cab exactly ev everything right to donate to monks <laughs> they do you know they, they they do they have the qr code so you you send exactly. some money they get the monk supply shop <laughs> yeah <laughs> gotta gotta raise the funds for all the incense <laughs> so does this shanghai theater academy culminate in a thesis or some kind of final project yeah, so we all had to write a thesis to get the degree, essentially. And so my second year was mostly focused on writing the thesis because I'd completed all of our classes. Mm. And so it was mostly like, OK, what am I going to write about? Research it. And then, of course, write it and edit and edit and mm -hmm. edit. Yeah. You start thinking about it your first year, then the second mm -hmm. year, it's like, OK, I actually have to do this. Exactly. <laughs> so what did you write about? Yeah. So my thesis, I mean, it's funny thinking back on it because once you're out of school, it's like, wow, I used to have a brain and now, <laughs> like, how was I writing these papers? How did I write a whole thousands of words mm -hmm. like thesis? So it was looking at 
how modernity and morality in like 1920s, 30s China was like placed on public female bodies. So more specifically movie stars and this one specific movie star, Ron Ling Yu, she like did a couple films, but then she committed suicide, I think at the age of 24 on International Women's Day. All of these details, you know, still in my mind. Um, Because she'd been kind of hounded by the press for like her personal life. And ironically, um, like in her last movie, her character she played also killed herself because of kind of similar circumstances. So it really just like compounded that, you know. Yeah, life imitating art in the most profound way. Yeah, so like I looked kind of divided into three sections. So in the first bit, I I looked like at her, her life and her movies. And in the second chapter, I looked at kind of her afterlives in a way. So there's a movie, Center Stage, or Ron Ling Yu by Stanley Kwan, that is a biopic of her with mm. Maggie Chung in it. Ooh. Yeah, play, playing Ron Ling Yu. Um, and so it kind of combines both actual footage of the films as well as reenactments, both of the films and like of her life. Mm. And then interviews with the actors in center stage. So Maggie, Maggie Chung and the other people. And so I analyzed that. And then in the third chapter, I was like, okay, how do I bring it to now? Mm. Um, And so it was kind of about, you know, policing women in public and like that placement of morality onto these very public figures. And so I looked at Fan Bingbing, who who went through a score of problems (laughs) with the government. Exactly. Yeah. And who is an alum of your school. She is. Yeah. Right. So her name is Ran Ling Yu, yeah. and otherwise known by Lily Yuan. Apparently, that is her English name. If you wanted to look it up, it's R U A N L I N G Y U, Ling Yu. That story is crazy. So yeah. she committed suicide. Yeah. At yeah. a very young age. At a very young age. And yeah, she, she was very talented too, like very expressive. I think her two most famous movies are on YouTube, like with English subtitles. So oh, if wow. anyone's interested, so you know. So people can check that out. Yeah. So one movie would be, uh, what is it called? I think it's New new Women or New Woman. Okay. Um, and so. New as in New English or New as in Chinese New woman? as in English. <laughs> okay. N-E-W. Okay. Okay. Um, and so kind of the struggle in that movie is like this idea, it was an idea at the time of like the new woman who like is different from the women of China past. Like she's in the new century, she's Mm. working, she's wearing new clothes. And so it was kind of like, you know, just life imitating art really, because then the actor, you know, portraying this character of the new women, she's going through these same things. And like the characters in the movie get judged for doing these things. And then she also gets judged. And Wow. So sad. Right. And then as we are saying, I mean, that was like the 1920s. Yeah. Right? 20s, 30s. Yeah. 20s and 30s, which was obviously quite a turbulent time. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of changes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Some pretty big dynastic sized changes going on there. And interestingly, you mentioned, you know, bringing it to the now Fan Bingbing, right? Mm -hmm. Who got into trouble for some, well, ostensibly for some Some, some tax tax evasion, tax reasons, right? But interestingly, I think that kind of captures two ends of history in a lot of way where it seems like right now we are entering a pretty huge time of change in China as well. Yeah, definitely. And like, yeah, I think Fan 
Ming Bing and all of her troubles is kind of just like a, a show of what's to come. Yeah, it was kind of crazy when I had to defend my thesis. So, you know, with a thesis defense, you go up against like this committee of professors. Panel. Yeah. And you have to answer questions, give a presentation and everything. And I, <laughs> I have the badge of honor that I've been censored by the CCP. So one of the, yeah, Congratulations. One, of, one of the professors thought that I was too easy on Van Bingbing in like my analysis. Oh, that is super interesting. Yeah, he was like, you should have... You didn't you castigate her in your thesis. Yeah, you should have said that, you know, she should have been sent off to a work camp, you know, like I had to work, you know. Um, and so it was like, this is just tax evasion. She's not like an actual... <laughs> criminal um yes she is Emily yeah. Haver. oh yes yes she is she <laughs> should be punished so yeah. what about why a ccp person can you kind of explain that for people who might not understand china yeah so like at all schools there will be like the committee member who represents the party at the school and right. just happened to be a professor on the panel so wow yeah got a little unlucky so i I didn't pass straight away like all of my oh. classmates did. I had to rewrite oh. the last chapter a bit um, just to kind of give, you know, a little more um, weight. to. Yeah, I would like I wasn't going to totally change it. But it was at that point I was like, well, I just want to get my degree. Yeah. Like I'll keep the, I'll keep the original version, but sure, whatever. Right. Um, and like my advisor, she she was actually like a Taiwanese professor. Hmm. And so. I think, you know, looking back, it's like maybe she just didn't think about it from that perspective of like who oh, would be reading it. Right. Because obviously, you know, like throughout the process, she was guiding me and giving me feedback, but nothing of that manner came up. So you literally had to censor and change, change yeah. your thesis, your final thesis in order to graduate for yeah, this had to get it, degree get it approved. to be bestowed upon you yeah. with the seal of the government, <laughs> ultimately. Yes. yes. Um, but wow. yeah, you know, made the changes. It got approved, graduated. For some reason, our the song for the ceremony when you're like walking, it was like the Star Wars theme, no. which I thought was just like a completely absurd, <laughs> perfect ending That's to like perfect, yeah. the whole crazy two year experience. Right. We talked last time about the theater of the absurd. Yeah. And, yeah. And that inspiration. Like, I was you. just living that, you that. know, nothing makes sense. Anything can be made up, you know. Yeah, that's perfect fodder for a, a future play, though. Yeah, yeah. That's seriously amazing. Start no way. Yeah, we, were you my marching? classmates and I, we were like, wait, what is happening right now? And you were wearing masks. No, because this was, you know, 2019. We didn't have to wear masks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah huh. Cra crazy times in, yeah. In, in china so when did you graduate what year so i graduated in june 2019 yeah like a couple months before that i'd actually secured a job in taiwan just because i was mm. trying to figure out my next move what i wanted to do and so i got a job at a tech company here and then yeah and then in july I moved. It all happened pretty quickly, I guess. This is an ongoing theme in my life of I like, so. oh, I'm just like, oh, what if I did this thing? And then it actually works out. And it's it like, oh, happens. crap. No, I actually have to like pack <laughs> and buy, buy a plane ticket. And that timing is impeccable. 
July yeah. 2019. You had no idea what was coming right around the corner, right? Because I was actually still in Beijing oh, up, until up until Chinese New Year of 2020, otherwise known as Chinese New Year of COVID. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, yeah. I... I really got out like at the perfect yeah. time. Yeah. And I'm so glad that I was like, yeah, I'll move to Taiwan, not knowing that Taiwan would be like the safest place also the perfect in the world. Place. Yeah. Yeah. I also managed to escape, but yeah. but yours was, you had a lot more leeway. It yeah. Seems like. I wasn't just thrown <laughs> into it. Um, Cause yeah, I was like, oh, like I, I speak Chinese. I've been to Taiwan before and I liked it. Like, Hopefully, you know, I can continue to like do theater stuff, but, you know, also just like make some money because like up until that point, I'd always been a student. So, mm. you know, not a lot of money in studying. Right. <laughs> exactly. So this first job and now you are in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. um, what was this first job in the real world? Yeah, it was like working for, it's still so hard to explain, kind of like working for like a internet services company. And so the, the product that I was working on was a website that connected freelance writers to clients. And so like the main way of making money was like having these clients and managing them and setting up kind of like a team of writers for them. And so my job was to like recruit and manage these writers. So Truly just like a random internet desk job, but <laughs> it got me here. <laughs> so it was a platform to connect writers with, with, with anyone with who wanted to hire Yeah, them. literally anyone, like a wine company or, you know, literally any company that needed content. Okay, so it's like a Fiverr. Kind a of. little bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But like very like curated. So, okay. Yeah. I see. And all in Chinese. In English, actually. So oh, okay. it's an American company that oh. um, was like founded by Taiwanese Americans. And so oh, they, see. you know, ended up being in Taiwan as well. Okay. But you no longer work for this company. Yeah. So now I, I work for like a English language learning magazine. And so I write articles and I edit and I do voice recording. And so it's, it's a pretty good work-life balance because I don't work as many hours as I did at my old job. So it gives me really a lot of time to focus on my creative pursuits. So I have the money and the time. So it's, it's perfect. Exactly. And that is a perfect segue into your creative pursuits. Yeah. Which is why I wanted to talk to you. Uh, all of this conversation is why I wanted to talk to you. I was introduced to you through one of our previous guests, episode 10, Liam Fanning, who is the creative director of Taipei Shorts. Yeah. So you have done some work for Taipei Shorts. Tell us about Taipei Shorts and how you came across. Yeah. So currently I'm an associate producer with Taipei Shorts as well as writing and directing with them. But I first came across Taipei Shorts. So this was before Liam was the creative director. Um, John Brownlee was in the role. And so it was right before I moved to Taiwan, actually. And so I'd gotten a job and I was like, OK, what's like 
the theater community? Like, mm. what's the the English speaking theater community like? And so I was just literally searching on Facebook, like theater, Taipei, drama, <laughs> Taipei, that type of thing. And I came across this thing, Taipei Shorts. I click on the page and I see, oh, we're looking for scripts for Taipei Shorts too. And I'm like, well, I have a script. Mm -hmm. um, I have a few of those. Yeah. So I sent, so it's like a festival of short plays. And so I sent off a play that I had written that had been produced before in Shanghai. Mm. Um, and so then they accepted it and I was like, cool, um, I'm not in Taiwan yet, but I will be. Mm -hmm. So I was I'm like, I can't, I can't direct it. Yeah, they kept messaging me and I'm like, I'm still not here. <laughs> Visa issues, I'm sorry. Yeah, so I ended up getting that play accepted and then somebody else directed it um, and I just told them, do what you want. Like, mm. I'm just gonna show up and see what you've done. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the name of this play? So this play is called Little Moons. 10 minute play. It's basically two people during a solar eclipse, watching the eclipse and doing like moisturizing Japanese face masks mm. and listening to Claire de Lune and mm -hmm. just kind of talking and asking questions about life. What was the inspiration for this play? So the inspiration was just like literally living a version of this of this scenario. <laughs> um, so like in 2017, there was a partial solar eclipse that went across Seattle when I was still living there, right before I moved actually. And during this, I happened to be doing those things with another person. And so- Face is, mask and all. Yeah, face mask, Claire de Lune, like these oh. plush armchairs. Um, and so I was like, wow, this is like so like poetic and romantic. Like this, this should be a play. And then I <laughs> sat down and I wrote it. So how was this play? Because you said it was acted or produced in Shanghai previously as well. So how did these two different renditions differ? Yeah, so w both times I gave the director full creative control. I was like, I just wanna see what you can do with it because my perspective is since I'm a writer, a director and an actor, I have my whole life to direct my own plays. Mm. Like if I have the opportunity for someone else to do it, like I, I wanna see how they interpret what I've written. Mm -hmm. um, and so the one in Shanghai, it was done with One World Theater. Um, so we were in kind of this writer's collective and decided to put on a show of shorts and so it was produced then um, and the main difference I would say between the two productions other than just like kind of aesthetically and those types of choices mm -hmm. was the casting so the two characters are named uh, young man and young woman and so in the Shanghai production they were both in their 20s and then in the Taipei one the director like made the choice to cast people who were older kind of 60s and 70s mm because they still had kind of that young spirit. Yeah, yeah. that juxtaposition in yeah. some way. Especially with this play, like the characters are so vague, like no gender or age is like really necessary. Like mm. you just need people who can, who can kind of like capture the spirit of it. So I know this is pretty much an impossible question and an unfair question, but which version did you like better? Oh, I mean, it, it's impossible. Um, yeah. But I mean, I think probably in a way the Shanghai one, just because it was mm. the first time I'd ever had a play fully produced. Um, mm. And so it was just very special to, to be able to witness that and 
actually that word, um, the theme of the plays for that small festival was witness. And so interesting. um, Yeah, it was just like very special to be able to watch that for the first time and think like, wow, like these people have put all this time and energy and they're saying the words in front of I wrote. Yeah, that I wrote in front of an audience and the audience is liking it and wow, why did they laugh there? That's interesting. Right, you know? right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. Co- uh, common problem I have. I'm like, oh, oh you laughed there? Interesting. Exactly. Every, and, every audience is different. And you didn't laugh there? Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, th- that's the worst part. When it's like, <laughs> no, it's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> that was, you didn't stand up and scream at the audience? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Huh, okay, so neither of these Little Moon renditions you directed, right? No. Okay, but have you now had a chance to direct your own play? Yeah, so this past year I was able to direct my play We're All Trash um, mm. for Taipei Shorts 4. And so, yeah, first time directing my own work. And so that was a super cool opportunity to do that. Just um, the, the play both upon writing it and through the process of staging it, like became very special to me. Um, And so it's it's actually gone through three iterations now. So it Mm. was performed at Taipei Shorts. And then we were like, hey, let's make it into a movie. So we shot it as a short film. And then it was performed in August at Taipei Fringe Festival. So mm-hmm. it's had almost a year of life, which is pretty cool. I mean, especially for a short play, like it's a 20 minute play. It's not two hours. Yeah, that's awesome. So we are all right. We're all trash. Yeah, we're all trash. <laughs> yes, we are. So. Yeah, it's a statement. <laughs> it is a statement. <laughs> so what is this play about? Yeah, so this play, if you're in Taiwan, you'll know about this. It's about these two women, a foreigner and a Taiwanese woman, who end up meeting at trash time in Taiwan, um, and they form like an unlikely connection, essentially. Yeah, so I think any Taiwanese or people who are familiar with Taiwan will understand what we are talking about when we say trash time yeah i think it's quintessentially taiwanese in a lot of ways it's part of the experience i think of living at least in taipei i don't know if other cities do this as well i think they do like i i've driven through places and it's like oh there's the truck (laughs) okay so can you paint a picture of what this trash time is or looks like or feels like or of course sounds like as well yeah, so I'm not quite sure when they started doing this, but I think to like encourage people throwing away things in the correct place and also to like reduce vermin and bugs and stuff. There's no like central place for trash and you don't like in other countries just put your bins out. And so in Taiwan, a trash, well, not just a trash truck, mm. hundreds of trash yeah, trucks like army. Yeah. traverse the city five nights a week playing for Elise. Yeah. Um, Um, And so you hear Beethoven and you know, (laughs) oh, shoot, I got to grab my trash and run downstairs um, and throw it away. And all of your neighbors are there, too, um, because basically like in every neighborhood, there's kind of like these micro sections. Right. Designated spots. Yeah. These designated spots where you go. And if you're on top of things, you go and wait and then right. throw away. If you're not, then, you know, that's why they play the song so that the, the ones who are late. Yeah, are the latecomers like, oh, can it's out there. Go. quickly grab their their trash bags and their son or daughter, too. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I mean, that, that's similar to one of the lines in the play where one of the characters is like, we're trash neighbors extraordinaire. Like, <laughs> may, maybe we'll be like these old men, you know, doing it in 50 years. And then the other character's like, well, I hope by then I'll have somebody to take out the trash for oh, me. Right. Spouse, exactly. kids, robot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think it's also a great opportunity for these moments, right? Where people just kind of meet serendipitously. Yeah. Well. Yeah, because like there's kind of that combination of both chance, but then also repetition because it's right. not like you're at the grocery store or the doctor's office and you meet someone, but then you never see them again. Right. But with trash time, like see the same people again and mm -hmm. again and again. Um, but most people in Taiwan, like you're not going to talk to anybody. <laughs> yeah. Uh, don't talk to strangers. Yeah. That is not the culture here. No. Yeah. The culture is to look at your phone until the truck comes. Um, right. But the play starts with one of the characters like crying on the street, holding her trash bag. And then the other <laughs> character comes in and is like, well, what's happening? Yeah, like, what's are, are you OK? Yeah. And so that like moment of, of stepping beyond your comfort zone kind of kickstarts the whole play. Right. Okay. So this whole play is around this one conversation or no, that's just kind of the springboard. Yeah, it's the start. So all of the scenes, there's nine scenes, all of the scenes are at trash time, but it's like mm. over the course of several months. Oh, and so it's like so not every the time they've seen each other, but you know, it's like at key moments in their friendship and relationship. Right. And then you can see the progression of their relationship. Yeah. Over these how how they're acting times. together. You know, sometimes they'll come in together or, you know, oh, I was waiting for you. That type of thing. Right. Yeah. Okay. So like Little Moons, was this inspired by some kind of interesting meeting at trash time? I wish, um, you know, maybe someday <laughs> I'll, I'll have something like that happen. But no, this was inspired because like I'd moved to a new apartment. I didn't have trash in my building anymore annoyingly so mm -hmm. i had to be the one to take out my trash and i was telling my best friend in the states about it and she was like well you should write a play about this <laughs> and i was like oh okay that's a good idea and it was the night before um like the submission was due for taipei shorts i'd already written another play mm. and like you know perfected it but it's like well yeah like i'll i'll try to do something and like i kind of had this middle of the night inspiration of like this you know image of this woman standing crying with her trash bag and wow. so i just kind of built up the story in the world from that and yeah, okay. that was the one that got selected. Yeah, that's crazy. So you had like a change of course, literally 24 hours before the deadline. Yeah, when I like got the idea, I was like, yeah, I'll just do it. <laughs> wow. OK, so let's talk about this kind of process. Mm -hmm. um, how does this work, <laughs> basically, for uh, any uh, human out there who, you know, most people can't write even given a full semester. Yeah. Um, but, you know, doing this in 24 hours and then also being selected. Mm -hmm. um, and then also it ends up becoming a 20 minute play. Yeah. So how many words is that? How many papers is that? How many computers broken is that? <laughs> you know, what what is this process look like? So it's like 20 typed pages. And yeah, generally speaking, I'll like have the idea, have the inspiration. Usually it's kind of something visual. I don't know why that's how my brain works, but it's mm -hmm. just like, you usually it's either visual or like a very specific scenario. Mm -hmm. um, and then usually I start writing 
by hand um, just because I find that it flows better because I'm not like censoring myself. Like it's just my own bad handwriting. Right. CCP agent not looking (laughs) over your shoulder. Exactly. Um, And then, yeah, then I just, you know, write it by hand. And then usually I don't finish it, but then I'll type it up um, and then keep keep writing. So what is it about writing with hand, that kind of, you know, tactile experience? What do you think it is? Why do you think you prefer that medium? I mean, I think it's easier to just kind of let it flow. Um, So oftentimes in writing classes, there'll be like, you'll get like a a prompt in five minutes and you just, the idea is, yeah, to free write and like just not remove pen from paper like in, in five minutes. And so... It's a little bit like that where it's just like Mm. I'm just going to like fully give in to like the creative impulse and not censor myself, not think, oh, what word should I use? Like, let me change that because or look it up. Yeah. Get distracted on the Internet. That's Um, the problem, right? Yeah. yeah, So it's easier, I think, just to kind of get into the flow if I'm writing by hand. Okay, And then you will transcribe it digitally and then continue to work on it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, you know, be looking at what what did I write? What's (laughs) Oh, gosh. Um, If it's a short play, generally, I don't edit it too much. Um, Obviously, if it's a longer play, it takes more time to write and to edit and stuff. But with short plays, like I find it quite easy to just once I have that idea and I have kind of a sense of who the characters are and what they want, that's kind of the essential part. Like it it can't just be two people standing around not Mm. wanting anything to change. Um, People have to want something and there has to be something in their like environment that changes. And so as as long as I have those plus like the image in mind, I'm good to go. <laughs> right, right. So it's like Little Moons. And you mentioned this last time where all you really need is just two people. And have all your plays been two main characters and the interaction between them? Yeah, all of my short plays have just because, I mean, A, practicality. It's a lot easier to rehearse if you just have two actors and their mm, schedules. <laughs> um and, you know, it's it's easy to like submit to festivals because oftentimes people want these more minimalist setups. Also, like outside of the practical nature of it, like I think it's interesting to just like look at the relationship between two people and just like really get into who they are without any background noise. I love that. And that seems very minimalistic in a lot of ways. Is that kind of a conscious decision to be minimalistic and, you know, kind of paring down this situation to its most kind of essential core? Or do you think there's some other reason why you've kind of narrowed down on this two person kind of chemistry situation? Yeah, I think the the minimalism does kind of appeal to me in that like yeah it's these just these two people and their conversation and a lot of it you know the actors really have to work like they there's nowhere to hide exactly if it's a two-person play um yeah so i think that's something that appeals to me and 
I, I was talking about it with my uncle this summer, actually, because like I've written a lot of short plays in part because it's easier to get them produced. You don't need as much time or as many resources. Um, but he said something very apt about how a really good short play is almost like a really good children's book, like a really good picture book. Within the form, you only have so much time and space to like get your message across. Mm. Um, and like the best children's books, picture books, you know, like they can really touch you and like really make you feel something. And so I was very moved when he said that to me because mm. I was like, you know what? That's so true. Like, right. um, you can still, you can still really get so much across in like this minimalist short format. Okay. So what about paring it down even more? Have you ever written something as a monologue or as a kind of conversation with oneself or maybe an inanimate object like a pet rock, perhaps <laughs> something like that? So have you ever done something like that or is that something that you might want to try? So I've never like written a truly one person play, but I, I do have like a full length play that I've written where the main character, she talks to the audience a lot. And so there's a lot of, in a way, it's like kind of like a memory play. So it's like her recounting things and then eventually like it's in the present. But in that, it's a lot of her working through things and like directly speaking to the audience, figuring it out. And like, for example, so like that play hasn't been produced at all. But earlier this year, I was part of a monologue slam. So it's kind of like this monologue competition. Um, mm. And so I got through, you know, the different rounds. And then in the finals, I decided, you know what, hey, I'm going to take the opening monologue from this play that I myself have written and I'm going to do it, you know, not to try to win really, but just to kind of workshop this workshop it, you know, test it out in front mm. of an audience. Um, and so, oh. yeah, that was like maybe like a eight minute monologue. You performed. Yeah, that I performed. Own... That was my first time ever performing my own work. Um, oh, wow. Really? Yeah. So that it was crazy. Um, <laughs> Wait, yeah. hold on. So where is where was this monologue slam? Was this in Taipei? Yeah. So it was in Taipei. So it was wow. um, with this other theater group that I've um, worked and produced with called PPRT, Post Pandemic Renaissance Theater. But Obviously, we're not post-pandemic, so the name the name to, might okay. be changing, right. <laughs> honestly. Um, and so we set up this series of monologue slams over at the Red Room, okay. um, at Red Room Rendezvous, as it now is. It's a right. restaurant. But they let us have, like, the top floor. And so over several months, there were the different rounds. And then, like, the finals were in February or something. And so all of the people in the finals, they had to do, like, a classical thing. So, like, Shakespeare or something. Right. And then a contemporary one. And so when I did the contemporary one I just went up there and said okay I'm doing because normally you don't have to say the playwright's name mm. so you'll oh, say like hi okay. I'm Emily I'm doing X from X so okay. like I'm doing Juliet from Romeo and okay. Juliet so I, I was see. like I'm doing X from this play and just did it. And afterwards someone was like, oh, what, what is that? Right. It's like, oh, I wrote that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So how did it go from your perspective and how did that feel? I mean, it was also your first time performing your own play. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was definitely interesting. I mean, I, I do get pretty nervous if it's just me doing a monologue out of the context of like a 
a play because it's kind of like public speaking, which I hate. Mm -hmm. Like we you talked just about have to, that last yeah, time. you just have to go up there <laughs> and be yourself. So at least I was a character, but I, I was just, you know, a little nervous. It was, yeah, quite special to be able to do that um, and just have the freedom to explore. Mm. And like this was the first play, yeah, that I'd ever written like outside of class. And so mm. it, it's kind of been on the back burner for a while. It needs a work and be like a lot of you know like time and money to actually stage it but it was cool to finally be able to get it on its feet a little bit mm. i also was interested by another thing you said about your writing process which is that you kind of always need some kind of visual inspiration mm -hmm. right i'm curious do you lucid dream i maybe a little bit like I, I do, I have a very active imagination <laughs> as, as you can probably tell. Um, I'm not sure about lucid dreaming, but I, I have, I can have very like intense daydreams at least. Mm. Yeah. You daydream. Sometimes. Yeah. Just like going off into, into fantasy land. Okay. I mean, sometimes it's just like, why did I have that conversation that way? Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I should have said it like that, but you know, sometimes just like spacing out and mm. seeing, seeing what comes up. Okay. So where do you think this visual part comes from? And do you know of other playwrights who have like a very strongly kind of visual approach as well? Hmm, yeah, I really don't know hmm. where it comes from in myself. Um, somehow that just like turned turned into my process. Even as an actor, I really do rely on different mediums for inspiration. So hmm. usually when I'm in a role, I'll like come up with a lot of like songs and pictures and stuff. And even when I direct the homework that I set my actors in early rehearsals is to bring a song, a poem and an image that mm. like connect them to their character. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just I, I enjoy like layering on these different elements for inspiration. And then in terms yeah, of other writers who do this, I don't know. I mean, I. Probably some, you know, have this in their process. Like there's definitely writers out there that um, their work is very visual. But mm. yeah, I'm, I'm curious too. <laughs> Am I alone in this or are there others? I'm sure there are. And if there are, please reach out <laughs> yes. and let us know. Um, yeah, kind of my follow-up question on that is that, you know, you love plays and mm -hmm. you love words, right? You love writing, you love reading. So I'm curious about the intersection between those two things, which is you mentioned that really kind of strongly visual approach or mm -hmm. influence on your work. So why not film or some other media mediums or media that are much more kind of visually focused? Do you think that that might be something that you will naturally gravitate towards since it seems to be, you know, how your brain works in a lot of ways anyways? Or if not, what is it especially about this medium of playwriting that you really love? Like as a as a playwright, I and, and just like a theater artist in general, like what I love about the theater is that like it's alive, like it's in the moment, like you can't you can't be fake up there. You can't, you know, redo something like it's all happening and the audience is 
is with you on on that on that journey and so that kind of like intangible incapturableness of mm. theater is is what i really love because it's gone you know mm, it, it's transient like, yeah like Once you you can't keep it and so there's something about that that just really appeals to me that, that's interesting that you say about like the visual thing because the the things that i really love about theater are kind of like the words and the performances and like i act too and so i love doing that and i love seeing good acting like i guess you know when it's all in place the visual is just kind of like a nice cherry on top of that. I mean, I'm sure scenic designers out there will disagree with me. Um, but when, when you're working with a budget of zero dollars, you know, mm -hmm. you you do what you can. But I am definitely like interested in maybe branching out more into film. And so it was interesting, like adapting We're All Trash into a short film because that was like the first time I wrote for film. Nothing changed too much, but it, yeah, it was, was like my first that. time directing really as well for film. Yeah. So how did it change or what were the main changes that you kind of either noticed or realized maybe as some kind of epiphany where it's like, oh, wow, this really had to change because of this medium. Did you notice that with anything? I mean, it was mostly like the actors' performances, like they had to kind of bring it more interior rather than exterior because the, the camera, it does capture everything. And so mm. we, we really did work on that together. Also with film, there's just like so many random things out of your control. Like I had to rewrite one scene because we had a very limited time of filming because one actor was going back to the US for a trip and we just wanted to get it done. And so one of our shooting days, it was pouring down rain. Mm -hmm. And so I rewrote a scene for it to take place like in a character's apartment. Mm -hmm. um, so just kind of thinking on thinking on my feet. <laughs> and then, yeah, just like the real world has an impact. So like we found our perfect alleyway to shoot the film in. And first weekend went fine. Second weekend went back and the literal light post the light was gone in that alley <laughs> it was the only source of light in that alley no way and we were just like what do we do and so we kind of tried to find to a new place it for the darkness no it, it was <laughs> too dark for that too and so and we like found another place and we like you know, tried to think about like, okay, well, we can like show that they like have like switched to a new spot on the street because you never see the full street. You just kind of see the spot that they're at. And so we were trying that. and I was like, oh, this doesn't feel great, but you have, we only had a short amount of time. And then the next weekend I went back. It was our last weekend of filming and the light was back. <laughs> so we were able to like get it all done and reshoot the scenes. But it was just like, what in the world? Who was it? Like, were they, was it like maintenance? Like, it was so weird. This is like some playwright conspiracy. Someone trying to sabotage your work. It was your biggest. Uh... Horrible. <laughs> yeah. So big difference there, you know, at least with Jeez. theater, like you're not going to have that problem. You'll have many other problems, yeah, yeah, I was gonna say. but nobody will like, you won't be surprised by your light source disappearing. Mm, true. Light, yeah. light is so important. Yeah. Light is everything. Yeah. Especially in film. Right. So yeah, it was just like, oh no. <laughs> 
the only like supplementary light that we were using, I bought like these like LED strips that mm. like literally I would hold in certain places to like get, you know, the actor's face. Oh, that's um, funny. Cause, Cause I wasn't the one like shooting. Like mm. I had a director of photography and like their assistant. So so no, you there could become those, the lighting yeah, assistant. I, yeah, I can put lighting, costumes, uh, snacks. <laughs> you know, the, the, in the credits, there will be a whole list oh, of, really? you know, <laughs> all of the things I had to do. Oh, that's Moral funny. support. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> okay, so previously we talked about your early book influences, those like kind of childhood books of yours. So do you have a playwright inspiration? Maybe I can test you again. <laughs> Three playwrights, or maybe we'll uh, broaden the scope a bit. Not only playwrights, but plays, some kind of really important plays in your life or playwrights. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So I think one playwright whose work I really love and has inspired me. His name is Charles Mee. So he kind of uses like the classics as inspiration, like Greek stories, but also really like uh, just a lot of like even just music, like classical music, mm. um, a, a whole bunch of sources. But yeah, he uses those as inspiration and sometimes even as kind of like found text. So incorporating other texts into his work. So he does these kind of reimaginings of a lot of these classics and he just has like a very poetic style that somehow still like really cuts to the the crux of things um he's you know one one playwright i okay. love okay charles me it is with two e's so it's m-e-e -E, who also is a special lecturer of theater at columbia university it seems like he's a new york based yeah yeah i think so he's one of my favorites oh there's just you know there's there's so Too many, many <laughs> out there it's so hard to choose yep and you only have two choices left yeah um be careful the ones you don't mention are gonna i know haunt you forever i so know really immediately after this right now i will just think about every other exactly playwright um <laughs> So another one that I love is Karadad Savich. I think that's how you say her last name. It's like uh, Karadad. Oh, Karadad. Yeah. Okay. And then S-V-I-C-H. Oh, I see it. All right. There we are. Yeah. So she's... Um, Vich. Yeah, like a Latin American playwright. She also has a very poetic style, um, delves definitely into magical realism. And like in school, I acted in her play 12 Ophelias. Like a, it was a student director who did it, but it was kind of like a retelling of like Hamlet and Ophelia, but from Ophelia's perspective. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So it's Caridad and then Svich, S-V-I-C-H, who is a Cuban, Argentine, Spanish, and Croatian mix. And she actually went to the University of California, San Diego, which is my undergrad alma mater. Oh, nice. Um, and then Charles Mee is from my grad alma mater as oh, well, yeah. Columbia. So <laughs> I'm just loving that as well. Yeah, some good connections Yeah, exactly. There. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so and then one more. You only have one more. Um, Be careful. What one playwright <laughs> I like a lot. Like I don't think my Chinese is quite good enough to read Ooh. his stuff. So yeah. Um. So his name is Meng Jinghui. He's like of the '90s, and yeah, he's like this playwright from Beijing who has. Him. 
yeah, he's kind of like a rock and roll guy in um, he's got like experimental Chinese theater, but he has this play um, in in Chinese. It's Wo Ai Cha 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 or I Love XXX. Right, and right, the right. format of the play is every line begins with Wo Ai, I Love some blah, 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 XXX, blah. Right. XXX, yeah. Ooh, yeah. And cool. so like it kind of came out of like the nebulous 90s in Beijing where things were like kind of a little bit more open and people could experiment and so yeah he he has some cool works and I was able to see so now now he's like the establishment so he like has like his mm -hmm. own theater in Beijing and Shanghai and so when I was living in Shanghai, I was able to see Wu Ai Cha Cha Cha. And so that was cool to see because it, it he's like kind of the first Chinese playwright that I was like, ooh, like this, you know, makes me excited about studying theater in China. And so this was before I moved there for, oh, for grad school. Oh, you discovered this before moving Yeah, on. yeah, because I read a translation of his play and like had read a, a book about, yeah, like experimental Chinese theater. Okay, so if you wanted to look this up in English, it is transliterated as Meng, M-E-N-G, and Jinghui is J-I-N-G-H-U-I, an avant-garde director, influential avant-garde director from China in the theater circle. So one of these articles from the Asia Society, after you Google, it says, meet the trailblazing badass of Chinese theater. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. You like badasses. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's got some pretty amazing hair. Yeah, that yeah. That hair is badass. <laughs> That's like the best adjective for that. <laughs> yes. So did you read his play as well in Chinese or see it, you know, done in Chinese or was this all in English? So I've read it in English and then I saw it in Chinese. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So that did help. And the big theaters in China usually have subtitles like they're in mm. Chinese, but at least like I can, you well, know, can kind it. of read along if I like right. miss some words or some context. So how good is your Chinese? Are you able to see a full-blown play in Chinese? And what percent of it do you think you can understand? Like the why? It really depends. So like this summer, I saw these three short solo shows at Playhouse Theater, Nanchun Theater, which is where the next Taipei Shorts will be. Okay. Shout out. Nice. Um, and so I knew one of the performers. And so it, it was quite cool. It was like these three indigenous Taiwanese artists um, and the shows were kind of like about that experience Ooh, cool. of um, being an indigenous person in like a predominantly Han Chinese society mm. and like those manifestations and they all had different interpretations. So I only got to see two out of three, but one of the ones I would say maybe like the vocab was like, or just kind of the story was a little simpler because it was like coming from a myth. And mm. so like that, you know, kind of makes it easier to have like that small context. Right. Um, and so like that, I would say I was like at 85%, mm. but then the other one that was like a little more complicated plot wise, I was like, Maybe like 55, 60%. Like still enjoyed it, but yeah, you know, I was like wow. definitely um, missing some things. Okay. But being able to see the, even if it's Chinese subtitles, it definitely helps. For yeah. You. yeah. Well, yeah, they had a subtitle thing as well, but it wasn't in use the whole time. But one of the shows at the end of his 
because part of it was like about being like single and like the pressure from like parents, especially for like from his community where mm. like family and marriage is really important. At the end in like the subtitle reader, it was um, saying like, okay, my height, weight, phone number, line, Facebook, Instagram, um, how often I exercise, non-smoker, <laughs> drinker, <laughs> like basically dating profile. Um, I, it was hilarious. Everyone phone was number. cracking. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Everyone was cracking up. And so I was, you know, so glad that I was able to read Chinese because like so that was... So you get his digits. So, <laughs> it was so funny. <laughs> you got to steal that. I know. I'm like, that. that's Just great. Just in case you're feeling lonely, you know. <laughs> Just write a play. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, I did a sketch show in Shanghai, and at the start of it, to, like, introduce it, we, like, did a PowerPoint presentation, and it was, like, introducing ourselves. So it was, like, our name, our age, like, our relationship status, uh, what Pokemon we identify as, you know, like, <laughs> just, like, random things. Right. Um, so a, a little similar. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Which... Pokemon character do you identify with most, Emily Haver? Important questions. Oh, I like Squirtle, but I don't know too many Pokemon, actually. Yeah, I just and, know a couple. And to be honest, I have no idea, so <laughs> I don't even know why I asked that. But that's for all the Pokemon, yeah. Pokemon, Pokemon, <laughs> Pokemon, Pokemon fans, fans <laughs> out there. <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay, so you mentioned the venue, which will be the same venue as the upcoming Taipei Shorts. Yeah. Which will be on... November. Yeah, so it'll be November 11th through 13th and 18th through 20th. So there'll be six shows. Um, super exciting. It's like the biggest scale up we've had because the theater is super great. It's bigger than 2-3 Comedy, which is where we were at last time. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, there's eight plays, six in English, two in Chinese, and there'll be subtitles in the opposite language mm. for for all of the plays right. um, to make it accessible to everybody. I've written a play and it'll be one of them. You know, we're in rehearsals now, mm. Get, getting closer. Um, yeah. Time is, has flown. It's ticking yeah. and fl flying. And, yep. Yeah, it really has. <laughs> huh, yeah, so we're less than a month away. Yeah, right? so... Crunch time it is, is crunch almost upon time. us. Yeah. So how are the rehearsals going? Tell good, us. Good, good. So one of the actors, um, she was in We're All Trash with me. And so we know each other quite well and we, we have that working history. And then there's a person from our the casting process that I cast not knowing. And so it's been fun to, you know, get to know people kind of in this new dynamic. I believe you will be an associate producer for this play. Yeah. So associate producer and then directing and having written it as well. Okay. Yeah. So what is the name of this play? Yeah. So it's called The Happiest Day. The Happiest Day, like today. Like today. <laughs> Hopefully no drilling in the background. Exactly. I know. it, And there hasn't been any drilling. Yeah. Or just our headphones are on and I guess the we'll audience find is out. like, what is yeah. that noise in the background? <laughs> yeah. So what is the happiest day about? What is the synopsis? Yeah. So it's about two best friends um, the night before one of them gets married. So they're like childhood best friends. And it's kind of them navigating what this change will, how it'll affect their relationship. And also it's kind of just like talking about relationships in general and life 
paths in general, like just figuring out what you want in life and how how you want it to happen. Though, of course, not as overt as I'm describing it. They're not like, I want to do this. (laughs) It's a story. It's fun. Yeah, you you have to watch it to understand. Yeah, those are like the themes. So what about the inspiration for this one? I'm guessing it's also a personal story. Yeah, so this this was like an image that came to me. Yeah, I just like woke up in the middle of the night with this image of like this uh, woman in like a pink tracksuit, like trying to put on a veil and like failing. So pink tracksuit. Yeah, like very like 2000s juicy. And so I was like, ooh, what, what's happening there? Like maybe I had weddings on the brain because I'd gotten invited to like a childhood friend's wedding. And so I was kind of thinking about that. And yeah, I wrote it and then It's kind of funny when I was home this summer, I went to the wedding and throughout my trip, you know, really was like talking to friends of, wow, like marriage, huh? Marriage and kids. That's one path. But there are actually a lot of paths out there. Of course. Yeah. Yes. So what about you personally? Still TBD. I'm like, do I want the picket fence? Do I want the traveling till I die? Who knows? Yeah. Probably somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle? Yeah. Picket fence. Some some routes, but you know, also plane tickets. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Is this something that is kind of surrounding you with, you know, all of your friends? And do you feel these kind of pressures? Yeah. I mean, I don't feel too much pressure, but it definitely is. It's in the air. I'm in my late 20s. And so it's it's kind of gotten to the point where people are starting to get engaged and stuff. So it's interesting observing that. And also a lot of the times my plays have to do with just like women like existing in the world and like the pressures that you get and just like navigating those things and so I guess this was like in my subconscious and that I wrote the play and it's like as we're rehearsing it it's a lot of oh was I thinking about that Mm. I I I guess so like now I I guess I have to think about it I have to talk about it yeah you mentioned that a lot of your plays center around women Mm -hmm. um your artistic mission on your website also says that Emily collaborates across cultures, making ensemble and experimentation based work that provokes social questions and is emotionally grounded. So what are these kind of emotionally grounded social questions that are most salient or interesting to you other than women issues? Mm -hmm. Are there other issues that specifically resonate with you or that you want to kind of grapple with and tackle? I think I'm really drawn to questions about just like being a human and the human experience, but then adding on different layers of identity to that because like who you are, it influences how you navigate through the world and how people perceive you. And so that's kind of where where a lot of my work comes from is looking at these kind of basic questions of being human. Like, who are we? Like, what are we trying to do in our lives? Mm-hmm. But like making it personal. Right. And especially in these somewhat turbulent times, mm-hmm. as we kind of alluded to before as well, you know, there's, I think there's so many challenges, obviously, facing us and the world. I think tackling these things also seems to be perhaps more difficult now or do you think that they will become more difficult you know as the world kind of becomes more complex 
as these kind of political and social and economic changes happen, there's obviously always ebbs and flows, but um, it seems to me that the air is a little bit damp. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it can definitely, I think, be easy, like as an artist to like feel overwhelmed by everything, like just like the climate crisis alone, you mm. know, can send you into a spiral. But what I try to remind myself is, A, not every play has to talk about like every big ticket issue. You don't have to solve every problem. No, not every problem has to be solved in every play completely. Mm. Um, and B, like even if it's not specifically addressing like a certain issue, just, you know, coming from my own life, my own perspectives, like that will automatically be in the play and like be a part mm. of the play even if it's not explicitly about something mm. yeah mm -hmm. so like in we're all trash so like the two women their friendship turns into a romantic relationship but the play mm. it's not a play where where one of the characters is like oh my god am i gay mm -hmm. oh like this is an identity crisis but same-sex marriage yeah crazy <laughs> but rather it's about these like two individuals these like very specific people who um they fall in love and mm. so it's not about it's not explicitly about these bigger issues but just like the existence of that is inherently political mm. yeah okay so let me double down on that what is a big topic or i mean you know because there's so many problems to choose from mm -hmm. <laughs> right now uh, for better or worse so what is one that if you had to tackle it explicitly i mean not necessarily in your writing but as a project which one would it be like what kind of topic is something that is very passionate for you you mentioned climate and there's obviously ukraine there's iran nowadays of course coinciding with your interest in women right and what is one kind of topic or region perhaps or something that if you could you would want to just try tackling that I mean, there, there's kind of like two areas that I've been drawn to. Um, like I kind of have a, an idea in the works that has to do with like violence against women, but mm. it's like kind of through this like absurdist, like reality TV, Love Island style play. Um, wow, I love that. Yeah, so it, it's still very much like fermenting, but like a, kind of an idea there. And then the other thing would be like just climate change, the climate crisis, because it is something that I think about a lot. And I think it, you know, it's something that's going to affect everyone. And it's not like I'm purporting like, oh, I can solve this through art. Like, obviously not. But mm. I think there's still value in like reacting and like grappling with this type of thing just because there are also like a lot of different intersections of life and society that you can look at through the climate crisis mm -hmm. okay so speaking of climate which obviously affects all of the world you also obviously had a lot of intercultural international experience if you are not in Taiwan, we don't know how long you will be here, right? Um, maybe that's also a question in and of itself. <laughs> Do you plan to be here for much longer, forever? Uh, what is that? And then if not, where might the next destination be? 
Yeah. So still very much TBD on my time in Taiwan. Like mm. I love it here and I love the creative connections I've made, the friendships, um, just like life in general. But yeah, the future, like maybe back to the U.S., Seattle, um, maybe like the U.K., um, just because there's a lot of cool creative work coming out of there. And it would be nice to, you know, be close to Europe because I've never been there before. Um, mm. And also they speak English. So like, I, I don't know. Some if, of them. I don't know <laughs> in, in the U.K. Right. I, I don't know if I have another language in me. <laughs> Spent so much time on Chinese. Chinese takes a while. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I've studied a little French and Spanish. So, you know, may, maybe something in there, but like not going to be going and learning like German. No, <laughs> no too German. much. <laughs> <laughs> OK, nice. So finally, for any young playwrights out there who might be listening and inspired by your story and your life, what would you say to them, ones who might be confused about their path, might not know if if this is the right path for them? What would you say to them? I mean, I would say to kind of take it easy. Like you don't need to figure everything out at once, even if it feels like that sometimes. Like I think it's important to remember that you do have time. Not everything has to be achieved like by a certain date. It's okay if you don't make a 30 under 30 list. Mm. Um, and yeah, that just to, you know, surround yourself with good people whose opinions you trust and who, you know, like aren't going to be trying to influence you one way or another, but who will just like be there for you as a friend and as a collaborator. Mm -hmm. Someone who listens. Yeah. Someone who, who listens and who, yeah, will just like support you, you and your journey. And of course you would support them back and whatever they're doing. Right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful note to end it on. I wanted to thank you profusely <laughs> <laughs> and times two or times three, you know, for sharing your stories, for your patience and understanding <laughs> under technical difficulties. Stuff happens, man. But stuff <laughs> happens. And we figured it out. And hopefully this was recording the whole time. It had better be. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, you all will find out soon enough. Yes. <laughs> if you've gotten here, it worked. It finally worked. And that the third time is the charm. Yes. Yes, exactly. It was a magical time for me. Thank you very much. Thank Emily. you for having me. Of course. All right. So we wish everyone the happiest day. <laughs> now it is nighttime. So we wish everyone the happiest night as yes. well. <laughs> Please make sure to come check out Emily's work coming up at yeah. Taipei Shorts. Which dates are they again? They are uh, the 11th through 13th and 18th through 20th. So Friday through Sundays, two weekends. And where is the location? Uh, it's at Playground Theater, Nanshun Theater. Um, it's very close to 101 and by the station there. It's like in the old military dependence village. Mm, yeah. Okay, beautiful. So... I will definitely try to be there. Emily, hopefully will be yeah. there. <laughs> yes. So we hope to see you all there. So thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. Yes. Bye-bye.